I will be reading from uh, John chapter 1, uh, verses 35 to 51. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they, said, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip saw Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, Philip said. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, and he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you you were under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. Um, Thank you that we can come together in fellowship with each other and praise your name. Uh, I pray that you would give Tom the correct words to say and that you would have the words speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Sam was kind enough to pinch hit for Philip, who had something better to do today, having a brand new baby to attend to. Uh, The title that you've got on your bulletin is Jesus Messiah, Bridge Between Earth and Heaven, Heaven and Earth. Uh, I would append to the beginning of that, Introducing People to. And then that would be a long title, but it would cover both of the of the big bases that we're going to talk about today. The passage that Sam just read begins with a man working himself out of a job. Have you ever had to do that? Uh, in the, the job that I had just before this one in the IT business, that's what I had to do. Uh, I had, had six months to work myself out of a job before I started this role. And because of a really good team, I was able to pull that off. But I got paid for it. John the Baptist... Uh, Well, his reward was not financial. This is the man that Jesus called the greatest man ever born of women. But the, the greatness of John the Baptist was not a function of his skills or his talents. It was certainly, certainly not a function of his reputation in the eyes of, uh, powerful men. It was a function of his exceedingly focused 
devotion to the task that God had filled his hand to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. God had commissioned this man while he was still in his womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was born to make nothing of himself and everything of Jesus. Even to the point that he had to stand by and watch his own disciples walk off to follow this other person whom he had been sent to proclaim. And the way John accomplished that assignment was very simple. He did it by bearing witness to God's witness of Jesus. John never got to speak in a crowded amphitheater. He never wrote a book. He didn't have a salary or a retirement plan. By this time, he apparently didn't even have a house. But this simple, humble, exceedingly faithful man was patient zero in an epidemic that spread life rather than death. John became the Holy Spirit's instrument to ignite a flame that spread throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the world and continues to spread today. You'll notice that the text does not say John the Baptist commanded his disciples to go follow Jesus. He didn't have to be that directive. All he really had to do was bear witness to God's witness of his son and God took care of the rest. We are sent to do the same. You and I have the same essential assignment. John is like a stripped-down version of what God has called all of us to do. And that is to bear witness to His witness and to give no attention to ourselves and all the attention to Jesus. We're not here to create me followers. We're not here to point men to other famous men. There's far too much of that that tends to go on at various places in the church. We're here to create Christ followers to increase His fame and His alone. We do that the very same way John the Baptist did it. By bearing witness to God's witness of His Son. The first thing I'd like us to to note in this this loaded passage is that there are no second-hand witnesses of Jesus. How did God use men in this passage to draw other men to faith in His Son? Well, Jesus directly called Philip, but all the other men mentioned in this passage were introduced to Jesus through the instrumentality of some person other than Jesus, some other man. John the Baptist shared God's proclamation about Christ and Andrew and another disciple whom I take to be John the Apostle left John the Baptist to meet up with Jesus. By the way, I I was thinking about how, you know, cumbersome it feels sometimes to keep saying John the Baptist. It's exactly the same number of syllables as Bob Beffenbach. John the Baptist declared God's proclamation about Christ, and two men, Andrew and John, left to go follow Jesus. His proclamation, in effect, introduced those two men to Christ. And Jesus took it from there. Andrew 
shared God's witness concerning Jesus with his brother, Simon. He said, Simon, we found the Messiah. And then Andrew, in effect, said, Simon, come and see for yourself. He grabbed his brother and he dragged him to wherever Jesus was and he set him before Jesus. And Jesus took it from there. Philip shared God's witness about Jesus with his friend Nathaniel. And then Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see for yourself. He brought Nathaniel to Jesus. He set him before Jesus and Jesus took it from there. How does God use us to bring lost people out of the darkness into his marvelous light? How does he use you and me to draw men and women and children to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, it's very consistent in Scripture. We bear witness to God's witness of Jesus. We proclaim the word that God has revealed. And then some of those who hear that witness come and they meet Jesus. They behold Him personally. God takes it from there. We bear witness and God does all the rest. Now actually God does all of it. But from our perspective in terms of our assignment, that's how it works. It looks like we're second-hand witnesses, right? That we're just repeating what God has said. After all, today, after Jesus has, is no longer physically with us, you and I can't actually take somebody and introduce them directly to Jesus, right? Like Andrew and, and Philip did. Actually, that's wrong. We can. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus is no longer physically here, but in the hearts of those whom God is drawing to Himself, the Holy Spirit turns our witness into a direct encounter with Jesus Christ in the hearts of those whom He has laid hold of. Let me say that again, kind of as clearly as I can. In the hearts of those that God is drawing to Himself, the Holy Spirit turns our witness to God's witness into a first-hand encounter with Jesus. That's how you and I introduce people to Jesus. We set them right before Him, just as surely as if He were standing here. How does faith in Christ come to men? Many of you know Romans 10.17, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And that word of, the word of Christ, I translate as the word concerning Christ. You know why? Because one verse before that, Paul quotes from Isaiah 53, who has believed our report. What report? God's witness concerning His Son given through the prophets. When you tell another person what God has revealed about Jesus, you are in effect saying, let me introduce you to Christ. You're saying, look, I've met Him. He's the one. Come and see. Come meet Him yourself, just like I did. You introduce them to Jesus by sharing God's witness concerning His Son. And God takes it from there. Again, it's actually all God's doing 
John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But this is how our assignment works. Now, how did you, think about this, how did you personally come to Christ? How did you meet your Savior? Well, one way or another, you met him through God's witness about him. Either directly from through the Bible or through some other person, you were exposed to the essence of what God says is true about His Son. And the Holy Spirit used that witness to introduce you, to show you Christ, to reveal Christ to you personally, directly. We who have been brought from darkness into light are all first-hand witnesses to the light because we have seen the light of Jesus Christ. We've beheld Him. We know Him. But the way we introduce others to our Savior and Lord is by proclaiming God's witness to His Son. And the Holy Spirit turns that witness into a direct encounter with Christ. That, isn't, that, isn't that cool? I mean, isn't that, that, that amazing? We proclaim, and God makes the real introduction You want to bring people to Christ. You want to introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell them what God says about Jesus and make sure that your life doesn't draw attention to you or to someone else. Make sure your life draws attention to the one you're proclaiming. That's what John the Baptist did. God will do all the heart work, which is also all the hard work. The Holy Spirit will show Jesus directly to those who hear that witness. And then Jesus will offend some and save others. And in some cases, He'll offend them and then save them, right? But what you and I need to know is that God uses the message that He gave to us to introduce lost men and women and children to Christ. That message that we bear, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's no other message like it. There's no other message that that can be said about. God wants us to know how powerful our witness to his witness actually is. So what is that witness? What was the message that these disciples, these first disciples, heard and believed and shared with others? What was in that message? What did they actually say about Jesus? Well, once again in this passage, the depth and breadth of the Christology that's in these verses is astounding. The the truth concerning Christ. Through men, Jesus is declared in this one passage to be the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Christ, Him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, the Son of God, and the King of Israel. And that's not even counting what Jesus declares about Himself at the end of the passage, which we'll look at in a little while. All of these things came as a witness through men, but from God. I want to jump right to the middle of that list I just read to Philip's witness. In verse 45, Philip, who had met Jesus, went to his friend Nathaniel, And he said this to him. He said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets 
wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I want to consider both halves of that rather amazing statement, starting with the first half. We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. All the other declarations about Jesus in this passage, in the list I just gave you, fall under that one. When Andrew said to Simon, we found the Messiah, the Christ, how did Simon know what those words meant? How did Andrew know what those words meant? When Nathanael said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. How did Nathanael know, at least at some level, what those words that he was speaking meant? I'm not asking how they knew those words were true. That's the heart work. That's what the Spirit does. I'm asking how they knew what those words meant. Beloved, I believe there is a very important reason that all of the first converts to faith in Jesus, all of the apostles of Jesus, and all of the men who wrote every book of the Bible were Jews. Descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I believe that that very important reason was that they were called to bear witness to God's witness concerning His Son, and the entire Old Testament is God's witness concerning his son. They were given a task for which they had a huge database that the Gentiles didn't have. And the Gentiles needed to hear it. They needed to know it. Now the Old Testament was not the Father's only witness of His Son. In fact, the Father and the Spirit had just borne immediate, direct witness to the identity of Jesus at Jesus' baptism, right? Jesus bears witness to Himself in this passage and throughout this Gospel. And of course, God bore much further witness to Christ through the apostles whom He started to call in this passage. And that's how we got the rest of the New Testament. But I believe it was critical that these first converts were all Jews who had grown up hearing the testimony of the Old Testament. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I hear what you're saying, but I can't think of a single place in the Old Testament that actually talks about Jesus. Well, let me help you with that. Please do not try to write down all the references that I'm about to spout. Okay? Don't worry about somehow walking away with all of this crammed into your head. Just listen for a couple of minutes. Don't try to follow, look it all up. Just listen. My task at this point is very simple. I want you to be mindful of the sheer weight of God's witness to His Son in the Old Testament. This is just a very small sample, so I'm going to miss a bunch. You're going to think of ones that aren't here. Jesus is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 whose heel would be crushed by the serpent, but who would crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the sinless last Adam who reverses the curse of of death brought on by the sin of the first Adam. Jesus is the perfect Noah who rescues God's elect from God's own fierce judgment against sinners so that they may find their rest in God. Noah means rest. 
Jesus is the perfect Isaac, the true covenant son whose life was not spared, whose father's hand was not withdrawn when he, the son, was placed on the altar, a cross-shaped altar as the perfect and complete sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham through whom every family on earth would be blessed. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob's patriarchal blessing upon his son Judah in Genesis 49. The fearsome lion of the tribe of Judah who will bear the ruler's staff and to whom will be the obedience of all the peoples. Jesus is the perfect priest from the order of Melchizedek whose priesthood is better than that of Aaron. The perfect mediator between God and man whose priesthood is forever. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the sin and guilt offerings under the law of Moses. The one whose precious blood alone atones for and satisfies the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the whole burnt offering under the law of Moses. The one whose dedication of his entire self to God brings us into the very presence of God. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the peace offerings who has brought His people into blessed fellowship with God because He is the perfect sin and guilt offering and He is the perfect whole burnt offering. Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb whose priceless blood causes the curse of death to pass us by. Jesus is the perfect tabernacle, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus is the perfect David, the one through whom God would fulfill His covenant promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. Jesus is the Messiah's Son, the Son of God, the King of kings spoken of in Psalm chapter 2 who will subdue and rule over the kings of the earth with a rod of iron. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise through the prophet Isaiah of a child, a son born to a virgin whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is that same child promised again in Isaiah 9 whose name would be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace, who will reign on the throne of David and over His kingdom in perfect righteousness and justice forever. Jesus is the suffering servant of God in Isaiah 52 and 53. Despised and forsaken of men, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, punished to bring about our peace with God, buried in the tomb of a rich man, raised from the dead, and exalted above all. This is all Old Testament. Jesus is the perfect high priest foreshadowed by the priest Yeshua in Zechariah 3, whose name means God is salvation. The priest who stood in the place of the people, covered in uncleanness before God, our uncleanness, suddenly declared cleansed by God, clothed in royal robes to stand approved before God. Jesus is that same priest, Yeshua, three chapters later in Zechariah 6, who is crowned as king. Priest and king in one. And I'm, I'm just getting started.
I won't go further with that, but believe me, I'm just getting started. The whole Bible, beloved, is God's witness to His Son. The one in whom we see the Father. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The one and only Son of God, He has made Him known. And the whole Bible makes Jesus known in order that we may behold in Him the Father. You don't have to know the whole Bible to point to God's witness concerning His Son, but beloved, you need to know that the whole Bible is God's witness concerning His Son. The more of it you know, and the better you know it, the more of that glorious life-giving witness you are thereby equipped to share with lost people. And it is by bearing witness to that witness that we introduce them to our Savior and Lord. And He takes it from there. The second half of Philip's declaration is Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Now this was the big surprise of all the things that these men declared about Christ. This was the big surprise in this passage. Israel had been waiting for the one who would do all, who would manifest all those other things for a long time. But this? In effect, Philip says to Nathaniel, look, we've found the Messiah, the glorious king of whom Moses and all the prophets spoke. But guess what? Brace yourself. He's a carpenter's son from Nazareth. He's not wearing a crown and royal robes and wielding a ruler's staff. Not yet. He's dressed like we are. He's not surrounded by a king's entourage. He's not unapproachable the way the kings of the earth are. In fact, I just had a face-to-face conversation with him. But Nathaniel, this is the one. Jesus of Nazareth is the one. Come see for yourself. These men certainly didn't understand all the ramifications of the things that they declared in this passage about Christ, but they soon would. And as was pointed out in the worship this morning, we do. We have the whole testimony. We're called to declare as true all that God has declared about His Son. But the most critical part, please hear me, the most critical part of our witness of Christ to this lost world is that God sent His Son into the world from heaven to earth to take on our humanity and to die on a cross in our place as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. The fearsome lion of the tribe of Judah is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Joseph, is the Son of God. We've talked about the content of God's witness to His Son to which these early disciples testified. We've talked about how that content had its origins in the Old Testament. Let's talk for a moment about the mode of that witness. If you prefer the context in which the disciples shared these declarations about Christ in this passage. To whom did the men in this passage pass along these amazing truths about Jesus? Were they standing in a public square in Jerusalem speaking to hundreds or thousands of people? No. 
In fact, John the Baptist is the only one in this passage who's talking to more than one person. All of the other men witnessed one to one. Over time, one man in this passage impacted millions of people, if you include the impact of his words recorded in Scripture. And that man, of course, is Simon Peter. But as far as we know, that's not how God chose to use most of the men that He brought to faith in Jesus right here. Some commentators, some Christians are quick to conclude that men like Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel just sort of dropped the ball and faded into the woodwork because you didn't hear much about them. I believe that is a terribly unfounded conclusion that's based on a man-centered measure of success in evangelism and discipleship. Day by day, I believe that most of the gospel witness that these men bore to the world happened one-to-one or one-to-a-few. In fact, I suspect that was also true of Peter. There are only a handful of instances recorded in the New Testament in which God handed a disciple of Christ a platform that involved a multitude of people. One of them had one such audience, a deacon named Stephen, and he died at the end of it. But the kind of personal witness that we see right here in this passage was a huge, huge part of how God spread the flame of the Gospel throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the world and the way it's still being spread today. And I think that's important. How many of you here today, and I am going to ask for a show of hands, how many of you here today came to faith in Christ through the witness of an individual or perhaps a series of individuals over a period of time, rather than in a crowd setting or through mass media? Quite a few. It's not that one of those is less legitimate than the other. My point is, a whole lot of what God does to expand His kingdom is done one-on-one. How many of you were faithfully discipled earlier in your Christian life by one or maybe two people? quite a significant percentage. Jesus' own pattern in this regard is very instructive, isn't it? He spoke to multitudes many times, and certainly many got saved in those crowds. But if you make a list of the passages in this Gospel account in which someone had an encounter with Jesus that resulted in that person coming to faith in Jesus, most of those, most of those accounts are one-on-one just like in the passage we're looking at this morning. And the intensive discipleship that took place with this first generation of believers in Jesus, as, with Jesus as the direct disciple-maker, was one to several, not one to multitude. That's important for us to bear in mind when it comes to discipleship. You, beloved, you are God's best situated instrument to reach the people in your sphere of influence. Your neighbors, your co-workers, the people in the stores that you frequent. God used Andrew to 
introduce his brother Simon to Jesus. Then God used Simon, whom Jesus renamed Peter, to reach countless others. And you've got to love how Andrew is identified in this passage, right? Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. I know what that feels like. There were years in this church where with anyone under a certain age, my name was Jesse Wright's dad or Jeff Wright's dad. Andrew is called Simon Peter's brother. But how important was Andrew's witness of Jesus in this passage for the spread of Christ's kingdom on earth? It was huge. Just like yours is. And that's not just because Peter was so powerfully used in terms of numbers. If Peter had only been used by God to bring a handful of people to Christ and each of those had brought a handful of people to Christ in their entire life, the numbers are incredible. When I was a baby Christian, I was in Campus Crusade for Christ, and I heard this speech by Bill Bright, and he said, if you disciple two people this year and each of those people disciples two people the next year and that's, that chain keeps going, you know how many years it would have taken to reach the then population of the earth? 32 years. And if the population doubled in the 33rd year, you just add a year and you double it. Your witness to Christ and your submission of yourself to Christ to, to disciple those whom God brings to Himself is huge in the hands of God. It's phenomenal. The Holy Spirit turned this cursed world upside down through 11 men that Jesus discipled during His three-year ministry, plus one whom Jesus called to Himself after He was raised from the dead, and that one was Paul. That should tell us something about God's design for expanding His kingdom through people like us, shouldn't it? These guys were fishermen and tax collectors and just people. We've been looking thus far at God's witness through men. I want to wrap up a little here by looking at Jesus' witness to Himself in this passage. It's extraordinary. Simon's introduction to Jesus in verse 42 is fascinating. Andrew brought his brother to Jesus and Jesus looked at him. And the word looked there means more than a glance. Jesus considered Peter. He was looking at his heart. And then seeing into his heart as he does with every man, Jesus said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means rock. Greek word Petros. Now put yourself in Simon's sandals for just a moment. <laughs> If your brother brought you to, to a man and introduced you to him, and the first, thing, the first thing that man said to you is, John, from now on your name will be Rock. How would you respond to that? I can tell you, I would be thinking, who does this guy think he is? Right? My mother and father gave me this name. I should at least have a say in whether it gets changed, shouldn't I? What is it about that statement, from now on your name will be rock, that might set someone off that way? Well, it's the authority that is implicit in the statement. What was the very first thing that Adam did in the garden that manifested his God-given authority to rule over God's creation? Not to care for it, not just to care for it, but to rule over it. 
He gave names to the animals. But who named Adam? Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, let us make Adam, man, in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over our creation. The first thing to note about Jesus' witness to himself here is his assertion of divine authority over men. The second thing is in his declaration about himself his assertion of supernatural knowledge, demonstration of supernatural knowledge of the hearts of men. Philip brought Nathaniel to him. Philip said, We found the one about whom Moses and the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's initial reaction was, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? See, Philip was a bigot. But Nathaniel agreed to come and see this Jesus and As Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile, no pretense, no fakery. And that freaked Nathanael out. Nathanael said, Whoa, how do you know me? We've never met. And Jesus said to him, Before Philip called you, Nathanael, while you were under the fig tree, I saw same way he saw Peter. God used that simple statement to convince Nathaniel that this was indeed the one. Now if if someone hung around me uh, for about an hour or two, he might say, after that hour or two, he might say, Tom, you're kind of intense. But not if he's never met me and never talked to anyone who's met me. Jesus is the one the only one who knows everything in your heart before you even know who He is. He's the one. But it's not until the last verse of this passage that we come to the most astounding statement in the passage. Jesus went on to say to Nathaniel, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? (laughs) You ain't seen nothing yet. He said, you shall see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you don't know the Old Testament, that statement would be a real puzzle to you. Be like a riddle that you'd spend a lot of time trying to sort out. But God actually told us before what this is about. In Genesis 28, about 1,500 years before Jesus came from heaven to earth, Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, was fleeing for his life from his brother Esau. At one point in that journey, God gave Jacob an amazing vision in a dream. A vision of a ladder reaching from earth to heaven with angels ascending and descending that ladder and Yahweh standing at the top of it. And God promised in that vision to give to Jacob the land, the seed, and the blessing that He had promised to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac. When Jacob awoke from that dream, you know what he said? 
He said, surely Yahweh is in this place and I did not know it. And then he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. (laughs) See, at the beginning and end of this passage, we find the heart of God's witness to His Son that He has left us here in this world to bear to the lost. John the Baptist first, at the beginning of the passage, declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God. And he had just explained that further. Before that, he said, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now Jesus, at the end of the passage, declares himself to be the gate of heaven. Later in John 14, 6, Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. God came to us in His Son in order to bring us to Himself. Our sin created an unbridgeable gap between us and our holy God, between earth and heaven. And we had absolutely no way to fix that gap or to get across it. No way. Only through the perfect sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God is that gap bridged. Jesus is the gate of heaven. He's the one and only way of access to God for fallen men. There is no other. All that God declared about Jesus through Moses and the prophets and through Jesus Himself and through the apostles is absolutely true and we are here to proclaim it. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God and Son of Man. He is the King of Israel and of all the earth. And one day, all of creation will bow before Him and acknowledge all of that. But when Jesus came from heaven to earth the first time, beloved, He did not come to reconcile man to the world or man to man. He did not come to liberate the Jews or to liberate us from oppression at the hands of corrupt tyrants. He did not come to put an end to the curse of death and all its terrible manifestations like disease and decay and corruption and chaos. He will do all of those things when He comes back. But first, He had to do the one thing on which all those other things depend. Because there is no redemption for creation until He redeems those whom He gave dominion over creation. And that's His image bearers. That's us. He came to reconcile man to God so that He might soon reconcile earth to heaven and bring all things together into one in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.10. That's God's witness to His Son that He calls us to bear to lost men. That's the message by which we introduce people to our Savior and Lord. God takes it from there. Dear Father, make us excellent witnesses to Your witness concerning Your Son, Your beloved Son. May we find Him so beautiful that we must speak of Him all the time. We pray this in His precious name.